The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Welcome. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever been to a cattle cell barn. All right, man. There's a few of you. Yep. (laughs) That's good. Uh, I remember the first time I went, I was a kid. My grandpa took me, man. It was like you walk down and you get in this pit and... The guys up there, and I was like, wow, what is going on? How does my grandpa even understand what that man is saying? And so anyway, um, (laughs) so what does that have to do with church? Well, let let me tell you a story. I was uh, 23 years old. My folks lived, uh, they had some property, and I lived next door to them and had access to this property, about 20 acres. They, at the time, uh, at this time in my life, they didn't have any um, cattle. I still had uh, my horses. I had had two horses at the time, expecting a third to to arrive. And I, uh, me and a buddy of mine, we were talking about making an investment on a cow, a couple of cows, you know. And so there was a sale barn down down the road, it was it was in the town next town over, and so we decided we were going to go over there and be cowboys. <laughs> so we get there, and uh, so they have the you know they 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 auction different things off. They'll auction calves off. They'll auction um, cows off. They'll auction steers, um, different age classes, and then they will uh, they will auction off bred cows. So a cow that has been tested and expecting to deliver. And so that's what we were going to buy. And so we were kind of waiting, you know, and different. they were just selling different ones. And they brought this one through. And some of you may have heard, heard me tell this story, but I know all of you haven't because some of you is first time here. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, this cow, they bring this cow through, man, and, like, the, nobody's bidding on it. Like, it's, they, they can't get the bid set in. And the cow's going, going down and around the thing. And we're thinking, man, that's, that's a good deal on that cow. And so she's going down around there, and he's at 300, and he's trying to get the bid set at 300. I look at my buddy. I said, you want to bid on this cow? And he said, yeah, man, I think we should bid on this cow. He said, yep. As soon as he said, yep, that cow took off running and charged at the guy in the pen. And nobody else would bid on the cow. It was the meanest cow you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> like, you could not get around this cow um, at all. She would, uh, she was, it was terrible. You couldn't load her. Um, but the cool thing is she ended up having twins and it's like, we were like, Whoa, we're in the money now. But then, um, the dogs killed one of them and one of my buddies said, welcome to farming. (laughs) Uh, so anyway, this cow, man, like she was so hostile and I was like, why is this cow so mean? I'm here. I'm feeding this cow. I'm watering this cow. Like, we need to get together, man. We're we're in a business venture together. I'm not here to hurt you. But yet she was so hostile toward anybody, and you always had to watch her back, especially when those calves came. Man, you you could not turn your back on this cow. Well, here's the deal. That's what people are like a lot of times. People are that, like there's something where it shouldn't internally, they're just so angry and so hostile, and they don't even realize it. They don't even realize they're keeping people pushed away from them. Um, sometimes they don't even think, uh, understand why they're so angry uh, toward the, the truth of the Word of God. But that's exactly what I observe in people quite often. And so uh, when you take a stand for truth, it seems like 
um, people can get really angry. And this seems like a new thing in our culture. It kind of seems like, man, it hasn't always been this way. But honestly, it has. It's been this way really um, since the time of Jesus. And we like to talk about Jesus and say, man, Jesus came and he's all about love. And man, uh, you know, people just need to love each other. If we could just love each other, we'd all get along. And I do believe we need to love each other. But um, honestly, Jesus, uh, I think we have some misunderstandings about Jesus. I want to show you something in Matthew chapter uh, 10. I was going to read one verse, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to give you the several verses here. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. We find this fascinating thing that Jesus says. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Very clearly, Jesus says, um, lays out the expectations he has. And then he says this, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against a mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so we see here Jesus says, man, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Now, there's one time that they're getting ready to um, have some movement. Jesus is moving toward his, his impending um, death on the cross, and the disciples think it's a rallying cry. And he says something of this nature about a sword. And one of the disciples picks one up and says, um, I have a sword. And Jesus says, it is enough. Like, I don't, we don't need a bunch of them, okay? And so what is, the, what is this sword language about? Well, the sword is obviously used to engage in battle um, and to take life, but it's also used to divide things, to cut, okay? And so that's what Jesus is talking about here, is he's saying, what, my purpose is to, to bring truth to the planet, and the sword is actually the word of God. Over and over, the, sword, the word is referred to as a sword. And it will separate things. It will bring about division in households. And so Jesus, when he says that we're to hate our mother, brother, or something of that nature, he's not telling us that we're to be hateful people. He's, he's trying to use the language that was common to the people they understood as he's speaking to them. You have to love me more than you do your parents. In other words, if you, if you are saying that you're going to be a disciple of mine and your dad says to you, if you follow Jesus, you can no longer come home, then you have to love me more than your dad and you have to be willing to no longer come home. That's, that's the kind of division that Jesus is saying. Now, is it Jesus' desire that that division take place? No, but it is his desire that your heart not be divided, that your heart is fully his. And so when we look at the scripture, we see that Jesus united his kingdom but divided the world. Everything is either a part of his kingdom or it's not a part of his kingdom. So there is to be unity in the kingdom of Christ around following him as the king. And this will bring about division and separation from the world. When we talk about the world, what do we mean? 
we obviously mean people. We mean systems. A lot of times the Bible uses the word world, and it's talking about um, systems of of uh, how people do things. And the, there's really the God of this world is behind those systems and how people function, how they think. Um, what Like when we hear the term, like this, you, you'll hear me talk about this a lot, and you'll hear people say it a lot, a lot. Culture says that's a worldly system, okay? It is not controlled by the king of kings. It is controlled by the king of the world. And that what culture says is the way we ought to go, then that's, that's really jacked up stuff. That's not according to what the, the scripture teaches us. And so in our text, when we go, uh, we've been learning about um, the kingdom and how it moves and taking this time to go through the book of Acts. And we've been really digging into the Apostle Paul. And so in our text, we see this played out and we understand um, hostility. So this is one of these passages of scripture, uh, uh, of scripture in, in chapter 22, the very end of 22, beginning in uh, chapter 23. It doesn't teach a lot of theological doctrine. There's no great doctrines about um, any kind of theology that we'd learn about God, the theology of man, anything of that nature. It's sort of Luke is recording the events that have happened. Now we know that Paul was in Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. He was taking a gift from the Gentile church back to Jerusalem. The Lord is trying to unify the kingdom and showing people who belong to him that both Gentiles and Jewish people are in the kingdom of Christ. And so Paul, is um, in obedience to Christ, has collected an offering from the Gentile churches, and he's taken it back to the Jerusalem church who is uh, on financial, they're on financially hard times. And so it's, it's helping to unify this thing. But it's a dangerous thing for Paul to go back to Jerusalem because he had many enemies there. Um, people he used to be on the side of um, Judaism and, and, and attacking the Christians, but Jesus intervened in his life. He did a 180, and now he is a servant of Christ. He is a part of the kingdom. And so those people that he uh, used to belong to, the Pharisees and uh, being a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, they hated him. And so for him to go back where they were was a very dangerous thing. But we know he, he goes back, and, and we learned last week that uh, they falsely accuse him of doing things in the temple that he shouldn't be doing, and they're beating him. They're beating, literally, like beating him out in the street. They're going to beat him to death. The Roman commander is on high alert because so many Jewish people have come and made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to honor this festival. And so he comes in, and they stop beating Paul. He gets Paul out, and he tries to figure out from the crowd what, the, what he had done. Some people are saying one thing. The other people are saying another thing. So he can't get any information out of them. And so Paul asks him uh, if he could speak. And he begins to speak, and the people listen to him. They're very in tune all the way up to the point as he's sharing the gospel with them. And he shares the gospel. And he basically says, this is who Jesus is. We've rejected him as the Messiah. And I used to be like you in the, the same position you were, but I encountered Christ, and he is the Messiah. And he's not only uh, called us to reach each other, but he's called me to go out and reach the Gentiles. As soon as they heard Gentiles, man, they lost it again. Um, away with him, kill him. And so the Roman guy... He's going to take him in. He's going to beat the truth out of him. And so he takes him in. He's about to beat him. And then Paul says, is it legal for you to beat me, a Roman citizen? And so the guy backs off. He doesn't beat him. And we get to, um, that's where we left off last week. And so we pick up in uh, verse 30 of chapter 22. 
that's where we're at. Paul, is, he's, he's, he's kind of been going through this experience. And so I want you to look for the hostility in the people. And then I'm going to give you just a few uh, real quick <clears throat> observations, hopefully that will help you to navigate through life to understand why, what, you know, some things you may be feeling, some things you may be dealing with, some things some other people may be feeling toward you so that you know how to live out your faith and love Christ with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we start in verse 30. It says, the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and he ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Okay. And so they're not in a formal assembly. He's just called the guys who's the leaders, who are the leaders of the, of the Sanhedrin, about 70 men, Jewish men who were leaders in, in Jerusalem. Um, and it says, then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. And it says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and he said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this point, the priest, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Bam, they hit Paul right in the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be uh, struck. You ever felt like just giving somebody your two cents? That's what Paul does right there. He just tells a man, like, you can't do that. You're violating the law. And then they say, those who were standing there, Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest. And Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the uh, the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee. The son of a Pharisee, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and the, uh, that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So we had two groups within the Sanhedrin. Some people believed in angels and, and the resurrection of the dead. And then, and then these other uh, members of the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And you know the saying, and that, so they were sad, you see. Jonah loves that joke. I I didn't want to tell it again, but he likes it, so I did it for you, Jonah. (laughs) And so so when Paul says, he says, man, I'm a Pharisee. I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Boom, man, these guys start fighting amongst each other. They forget about Paul. And there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. And they said, um, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And the dispute came, became so violent that the commander was afraid. Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from the, them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so <laughs> here's what Paul is doing. He's, he's like, he knows that these guys are, are lost. He's been trying to share the gospel with them the whole time. And they get very upset with him. He knows he's in a very precarious situation. He knows he also was a Pharisee. Growing up, he was a Pharisee. And so there were things that he understood about being a Pharisee that were right, and there were things that were wrong. And he clearly believed in the resurrection because he had encountered the resurrected Christ. So he throws this out there, man, and he know, like they end up getting in a fight, and they forget about Paul. Okay, And so they, the commander pulls Paul out and and uh, after he's arrested, he, he, or, or he puts him back in the barracks. And, and so Paul's there, 
And all of these um, people are, are um, none of them respond to what Paul is trying to share with them. And so you can just imagine what it would be like to be Paul. Here he is. He's, he's, he's doing all that he can uh, to live according to the power and demonstration of the Spirit. And this is, this is where he finds himself. Nobody's listening. And um, he's, he's probably sitting there lonely in that moment, feeling like what he's doing is doing no good. He's having no movement whatsoever. And in this discouraging time, it says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As, if you, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, this was not a spiritual appearance like an apparition of, or something. This was Jesus. The physical Jesus that responded and, and visited Paul on the road to Damascus shows up in his jail cell, and he encourages Paul. In a very down and, and low point in his life, he speaks life into him. And then it says the next morning, because you know the guys, they, they realize what Paul did to them, and they're upset about it. And so they're upset that he distracted them by getting them to fight amongst themselves. And it says, the next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. And the centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for, this, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And the commander took the young man by the hand, drew, uh, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. And the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. And so there's a group of Jews that were so upset about this, they go and they, they, um, they make a plan with the Sanhedrin that they're going to ambush and kill Paul. And it says that then the a commander, he called two of his centurions and, and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings, this man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. And I think I said that right. Y'all with me? Just go back real fast, man. Nobody knows. The next day they left the uh, they let the next day they let the cavalry go on with him 
while they returned to the barracks. And when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter um, to the governor and handed Paul over to him. And the governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. And learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I, tell, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Now, real quickly, as we, before I make these observations, one thing you need to see in this is sometimes it may feel like nothing in your life is working out when everything is working out just like it should. For Paul, it had to feel like, man, I need to be out there developing these churches. He planted churches for years all over this area. And there was just a missionary movement that was just rolling. And now he's locked up and he's probably feeling like, I need to go out there and take care of these people. But the Lord was about, he was positioning him. And he's about to share his testimony with some of the most important leaders of the day. And so we'll see that in the coming weeks. The next few times, Paul, over and over, he gets to share his encounter with Christ and um, the gospel travels throughout the known uh, world as, as, as it, it enters upon the ears of, of these uh, Roman leaders. And so here, here are three observations. We look at that whole story. Okay, what do we pull out of that um, to help us in our journey in life as we're navigating through life and, and thinking about these things about hostility and how hostile people can be, uh, become toward the gospel? Well, here's the first thing that we need to take away. The gospel creates shameless people. Okay, this is what it does. Like the gospel just creates shameless people. Paul said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in good conscience. And so what he's saying is like, I have, I have no shame in my life. I make no apologies for my life. I am shameless before the Lord. My life is an open book before God and, I, and what, I have, uh, what I have is truth. And he's standing on that. He won't, he won't be shaken from it. And he basically is lining up and saying, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And I can't get away from that. And I'm open before God. I have no shame in my life. I've submitted to him. And he is why I am shameless. Now, here's what we need to understand. We are not designed to live with shame. Like, the way we're made up, as human beings, not as believers, as humans, we are not designed to live with shame. So Jesus comes and makes us shameless. That's the gospel. Like if I look at my life and here's the thing, man, is I have been broken over my sin but I can look back on my sin in, in the past and look back on the things where I know I rebelled from the Lord and it brings me joy. How can a person look back on their sin and bring them joy? Because I have no shame over that sin, and it is for my hope in the cross that I know that sin has been covered. And that just makes me joyful. I, and so I'm not, like the Lord knows I am not designed to live with shame, so he makes me shameless. If you are carrying around shame today, you are not walking with Jesus. You say, what? You can't be. You cannot walk with Jesus and carry shame in your life. Why can you not do that? Because if you're carrying shame, now I'm not saying you can't be a believer. I'm saying you're not walking. You're not following. You're not walking in obedience. You're not right up behind him in intimacy. You're, you're, you're removing yourself from him, and shame is becoming a barrier. That's why the enemy, the devil himself, is labeled as an accuser. He's trying to make you feel shame. 
And that draws a, drives a wedge between you and God. What, the reason you cannot walk with Jesus and carry shame is because you're constantly reminding Jesus that the cross has no power. You're saying the cross can't get it done in my life, Jesus. That's why I'm shame. I'm, I'm shame. I'm feeling shame right now. The Lord wants you to not feel shameless. That's why he died on the cross of Calvary. And so as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we don't bear shame. So if you walk around and you go, man, every time you think about God, you hang your head you got a problem with shame. The accuser is wearing you out, and you should not be letting him do that. This is what Paul is saying, man. He's saying, like, I, I, I stand before God. I have fulfilled my duty in good conscience. Like, you, my life is an open book before the Lord. I have no shame to carry around. This is the gospel. It is good news, okay? So be encouraged. Like, be encouraged. Like, if you walked in, you go, well, man, I feel shame right now for feeling shame. Then this is what you need to do right now. Just say this. Jesus, I'm sorry for carrying around shame. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins when you confess them and to cleanse you and, 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 and to give you his righteousness. And so we go, man, like that just kind of makes me happy right there. Like, and think about the things um, that, that I do and I blow it. And man, I, I, I feel bad in that moment. And I say, man, I'm, Lord, I'm sorry. And he goes, okay, bro, like, I, I get it. Just try to follow me and don't, 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 don't get tripped up by that again. And he is patient with me. But if I hold on to it and I go, man, I blew it there. And I don't want to talk to God about that. And then I blow it again. I don't want to talk to God about that. Before long, I'm not talking to God. I'm not talking to Jesus about anything. And so my shame starts weighing down on me like a burden. And I'm no longer free to live in, in, in the power of the resurrection. Okay? So here's, this is very important. The gospel creates shameless people. That's just what it does. If we let it do its work, it just creates shamelessness. The gospel indicts people who don't understand it. So for people who get it, it creates a shamelessness. They have no shame. It indicts the person who does not understand it. Paul is clearly the example here of a person who is walking in no shame, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these Jewish men that collaborated together to kill him are clearly people who have been indicted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, they ordered him to be struck, first of all, and, and as they do, he, why, why, why is it that they do that? Just because he said, I have no shame. They thought that's blasphemous for you to say that you have no shame. You see, you're, you're almost claiming to be God. No, I'm not claiming to be God. I'm claiming to have God. He is in me. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, and there is no shame in my life. And so just like they missed what Jesus taught, they missed what Paul was teaching. If you don't get the gospel, it will indict you. It will indict. Like it will, and when it indicts you, it causes problems. Now look at this. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Okay, it says, In the same way, the gospel... That's the good news of Christ. The gospel is bearing fruit. That's just what it does. It just bears fruit and growing throughout the whole world. It's just moving just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. When the lights came on for you and you understood um, some translations say it this way. You understood God's grace in all its truth. 
And so when you, when you clearly get it and the lights come on, it starts to bear fruit in your life. This word here understood is the Greek word epigonosko. Okay, John uses the word gnosko a lot. This is the same um, uh, word with a, a different uh, prefix on it. And it basically means come to know, experience, or grasp. And so when you come to know the gospel, when you experience it, when you, when, when you can just get a hold of it and it changes your life, then it starts to bear fruit. If you do not come to know it, and this is an experience. That's why Jesus said you must be what? Born again. Like everybody can say, well, I believe the gospel. Okay. Do you know the gospel? Do you gnosko it? Do, have you experienced it? Have you come to truly understand God's grace and all its truth? Because when you do, then the shamelessness goes and the freedom of the cross shows up in your life. And so whenever that happens, and once you, once you get it, um, it, it, it just, it, like the whole world changes for you. You don't see anything um, the, the way that you used to, and that's why we call it uh, a come to Jesus experience. And so uh, if you do not come to know it, it indicts you. And that indictment does one of two things. It either makes you extremely hostile or it makes you incredibly indifferent to the gospel itself. It's, it's kind of like this when we look at these two things. Once you come to understand that two plus two is four, you can never, ever, once you come to understand it, like you could be taught it and your teacher could try to memorize, help you memorize it in, in school or whatever, and you go, oh, yeah, I know the answer to this is two plus two is four. But when you understand it and you go, oh, two of these and two of these gives me four. And the way to do that, to teach children to really effectively, is either give them money or give them candy. And they come to understand all four are mine, right? And they will never accept that when you say two plus two is three, they'll be like, no, 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 no. I remember when you taught me about the candy. Two plus two is four. I got one coming, bro, right? So whenever you clearly come to understand the gospel, you cannot um, accept anything else. So if you do not clearly understand two plus two is four, then you can accept that it's five. You can accept that it's three. But once you come to understand it, you can't accept anything else. And, and so it, here's, here's what happens with the gospel is some people come to clearly understand it. And so like they can't, like I can't get away from anything else. Everything that I view in life, whether whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm at, whatever I'm listening to, it is all viewed through the lens of the gospel. I, this is what I see through now. Like it's shifted my entire life. Not everybody sees that way because everybody hasn't come to clearly understand it. There are many people that we are interacting with. <laughs> Just watch the news and see how many people say that they are Christians and they are nowhere near the gospel. Okay? Nowhere near it. Like Nancy Pelosi and what Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi are doing and both of them running around, I believe Jesus. Really? <laughs> like the way you're treating each other? Like there's no way, there's no way that I could do the things that they're doing each, to each other and clearly have come to understand it, okay? 
And so we can look at this in every area of life. We can look at Hollywood. We can look in the sports world. We can look at music. We can look at everything. We can look in the neighborhood. We can look inside our home. When we clearly understand it, it totally shifts the way that we behave. And so the gospel either bears fruit or it indicts based on acceptance or rejection of it, okay? Indicted people destroy or become indifferent because what happens is this internal hostility is constantly indicting them. And so, like they, and so what happens is they, they, sometimes they will see a person as they saw Paul, so they might see us as we're walking in freedom, and we may not ever say anything. Paul hardly said anything, and he got slapped in the face for it. Why? Because they were indicted by their lack of understanding the good news of the gospel. Now, why is that important? Because it's the world we live in. And the, the, like it is, it's, it's clearly apparent as, as we look at the culture shifting radically, like it is radically shifting, more than it ever has in my life. Remember, culture, we would say, in the terms of, of that context of how I'm using it, is an evil world system. It is shifting. And now a worldview for a believer is radically, it's beginning to be radically opposed to the culture. Why is that important for us to understand? Is that the more that we live in freedom, the easier it will be that it indicts other people and we never say a word, okay? And so that, that's important for us to understand as we're interacting with someone and we go, why are they so angry? I didn't even say anything. Because internally they're being indicted by truth. It has nothing to do with you. And so you must be patient. What I love about this is that Paul in it, we see he gets extremely passionate. And so sometimes, man, we'll be so passionate about the gospel. Somebody else is being indicted by the gospel. We get into a debate and then we say things that we wish we never would have said. And that's what happened to Paul. And what does he say? I'm sorry. For those of you who are bold in your faith, and, and I hope we are all walking in that boldness, I, I would say for all of us when we get into any kind of discussion and we forget that people are being indicted by the gospel simply because it's truth, and the more they see it in us, the more indictment that happens. And if they say something very hostile, we can come back at them really hard. And we, can, we don't have to do that. Like what's going on in the, inside of them is already indicting them. Now I'm not saying to protect them from the truth. I'm just saying that sometimes in our passion we may lose our cool. And when we do, and that's the third observation, when your passion gets the best of you, be remorseful. Because you have to understand, man, you may, you may understand the gospel, but the people around you may not. And so you may be dealing with a spouse and the, like you clearly understand the gospel and they clearly don't. What is the call of the Lord? Well, as long as that person is willing to live with you, the scripture says, be patient with them. Show them the love of Christ. Let them see the glory of the gospel in you by the way that you live your life. Okay? And so that's what we're called to do. And, 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 and we have to be patient sometimes in these scenarios. And so all, all of this passion can can get the best of us, but this is why it is happening. And, and that brings us to our big idea that I want to leave you with. When you, when you see all of this, like because you may be going through a tough time. You may, this, this whole shame thing may have been the part of the message that resonated with you. 
Here's the big idea for you today. Your life matters to Jesus. Like it just, and we need to be, we need to be that's so simple, but we need to be reminded of it. All of this had to be discouraging to Paul. All he wanted to do was share. And he probably is beating himself up, thinking he's useless. No movement. Why did I open my mouth and say that way, talk that way to the high priest? And what happens? Jesus personally pays him a visit. Take courage, bro. I got you. I'm in this with you. And so your, your life, um, you, you see what Jesus was saying, your life, Paul, matters to me. It matters to me. And, and what we need to understand is, um, like my, this, is, this is fascinating. My life matters to Jesus. That doesn't mean my physical breath. It means everything I'm doing. It matters to Jesus. Your life matters to Jesus. And so as you're walking through life, man, like you, you get a little bit down, just be reminded, I matter to Jesus. And people in the world are going through all of this hostility. And we go, man, we shouldn't let it anger us. Like it's okay to be righteously anger, angry, but we shouldn't let us let it anger us to the point that we respond and retaliate. We always have to defend the truth. But what we need to be is we need to be empathetic and, and we need to go, man, like Paul was doing. I used to think like that. And the gospel set me free. And we have to realize that people are being indicted by the gospel. And our job is to love in the midst of that while standing for truth and realizing that it is in those moments that, that we always matter to Jesus, but I think it is in those moments when we're doing that, he is to show up and say, I'm with you, bro. I'm right here beside you. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.com dot cc